So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The next reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, 
in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And the third reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sally. Well, today is the third and last in our series on generosity, and we're going to reflect together on what it looks like to give well, to be uh, the generous givers that God has made us to be. Now, generosity, uh, we've been looking at it over the past three weeks, is an easy concept to get. What's hard is doing it, right? Uh, a social, ex uh, social ex science experiment was conducted in the 1970s, and it illustrates the point. Uh, there was a group of theological students, and they were asked to give a short talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, when they arrived at class on the day uh, to give their talks, they were told they actually had to go to a different building to give their talks. Uh, some of the students were told people were already waiting, so they really needed to get moving. Now, on the way to the, the building, there was a paid actor uh, slumped on the footpath. He was moaning and groaning, pretending to be in distress. But only 53% of the students uh, going to give their talks on generously loving their neighbour actually stopped to help. And the thing that had most effect on whether they stopped or not, how much time pressure they felt. It's easy to understand and even approve of generosity, but it's much harder to do. Partly it's because we don't actually feel rich, right? Uh, we feel uh, financial pressure uh, from mortgages, from paying for kids, the pressure to save up for retirement, uh, the limited incomes that we have in retirement. And partly generosity is hard because, to put it bluntly, we're a bit greedy. Whatever it is, often we don't feel we can be generous, even though objectively, objectively we're some of the richest people ever to live on the planet. But it doesn't have to be this way. God gives us a vision of who we are and who we're made to be. We're remade in Christ. We're being renewed and, and transformed in the Spirit's power. We're being empowered and motivated to be generous 
givers. So I'm going to pray for us that we would, be, that we would see, that we would, be, would, be, would grasp and would be captured by that vision. Loving Father God, you are such a generous God. You provide for all our needs and so we ask today through the power of your spirit, through your word to us, you would help us be those generous givers. Amen. We're going to look first at our Ephesians reading um, from uh, chapter 4, verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, if you look at the verse, it talks about three different ways that people can relate to each other. Uh, The first way is taking, right? A taking is when we uh, take something that's not ours and what's not being offered. And in the verse that we just read, it's the thief. Stealing is a pretty blatant form of taking. The second way of relating uh, is working. Uh, Workers exchange goods fairly. You get what you put in. It's like a fair trade. And Paul says that takers, people who are stealing, should become workers. And there's a third way of relating, and that's giving. That's generous giving. Uh, Generous givers give what they don't owe to people uh, that don't necessarily deserve it without expecting anything in return. Uh, Here, in the verse we just looked at, uh, it's sharing with those in need. And we share not because I owe it or because I get anything back, but because they need it. And so Paul says, takers should become workers, but not just workers. Workers should become givers, sharers, uh, generous givers. Well, why? Why not just stop at working? That would be fair, right? Uh, Verse 22 uh, gives us the reason. Uh, You were taught to put off your old self, uh, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, God has recreated us. He's transforming us into the likeness of Christ through the Spirit's power. And so taking, but not just taking, even just stopping at working, is part of the old self. Generosity, giving, is part of the new self, the new way of living. Because God, Father, Son and Spirit is a generous giver. From Ephesians 5 verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved and gave He gave himself up for us. The first phrase in that verse is stronger than follow God's example. Literally it says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. As reborn and remade children, we imitate our heavenly father and live a life of love. This love applies to all areas of our lives, including, as chapter 4 verse 28 says, our giving. And so we imitate God not only when we work, but when we give generously. So how do we imitate God? How do we give generously like him? Well, at one level, we can't. God is perfect. 
and we are not. Our giving is still flawed and tainted by sin, this side of heaven. And God is infinite, and we are not. We simply don't have God's resources to give. So our giving can't be identical to God's. It can't be exactly the same, but we can imitate him, right? That's what kids do when they learn to speak. They imitate, they copy their parents. Now, when they start, you can't understand them. Only their parents can, right? But they are doing it. And kids learn to imitate and speak according to their ability. And as they practice, as they do it more and more, they'll get better at it. That's how God wants us to give. Like him, but in a way that's possible for us. And he wants us to keep practicing and growing in our generosity as we seek to imitate him. Well, how does God give? Well, first he gives freely, willingly, joyfully. God created us and everything that we enjoy and he did it freely, willingly, joyfully out of his great love. And he redeemed us from the power of sin and he destined us for heaven, freefully, willingly, joyfully out of his rich love for us. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which, verse 6, he has given us freely in the one he loves. That's how God gives. And he wants us to give like that too. Freely, willingly, joyfully. From our reading, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's God's ideal for us to give like that. And often it is a delight to give, particularly when we see the joy and the good that our giving brings. But sometimes it's not like that, is it? Sometimes it's hard. But the thing is, we don't just obey God when we feel like it. Even when it feels like a chore, God still wants us to give. And so even if we're not feeling it, we should give. We should start, we should keep at it. And just like exercising or practicing a a musical instrument, it will get easier. We will get better and our joy and our enthusiasm will grow. Well, God gives freely, and he gives freely for the good of others, and so should we. Now, on the one hand, that seems pretty obvious, right, that we should give for the good of others. But it needs to be said, because sometimes, frankly, we don't. Sometimes we give to be needed, so people will be dependent on us. Sometimes we give to get control. We give with strings attached. Sometimes we give to be thanked or we give to get something back. But that's not how God gives. God doesn't give to get. He gives for others. And we can do that in different ways. We can just do it to make somebody happy. That's what God does. A word of encouragement, an unexpected compliment, 
are present just because. Doesn't even have to be a birthday. Gifts can be more than just things people need as well. They can be things that people delight in. But we should also give to meet the needs of others. That's what God does and that's what he's made us to do. And there are lots of ways we can do that. We can give our time, our expertise, our emotional energy. We can give the gift of our presence as we sit with others in anxiety or or, or loneliness or grief or pain. And we can give people our money. It's such a concrete way of loving someone, isn't it? To give them. It does so much good, particularly when they need it. Here's one stunning example of exactly that in Acts 4, verse 32 in the early church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there were, uh, all, that there were no needy persons among them. Because... From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's amazing, isn't it? What a great witness of the Spirit's transforming power as he transforms this uh, new community into the givers that God made them to be. But our gifts shouldn't just stay in-house. From our reading, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Uh, Giving to the poor, it's a very, very, very frequent theme in the Old and New Testaments. This quote that I just read uh, was from our reading, but the quote was from Psalm 112, and it's describing righteous followers of God and notice they freely give to the poor they do that because the Lord's heart is for the vulnerable and as his children we share that heart he's made us channels channels of his blessing to the poor so our giving should never just stop here but flow out from here to those in need God gives for the good of others And he also gives, freely gives, for the cause of the gospel. You may remember a few weeks ago we heard from Ephesians 4 and there it says Christ gave for the gospel. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, evangelists, he gave pastors, he gave teachers to spread the gospel and to build the church. And God also calls us to give our gifts as well of music, of administration, of encouragement, of wisdom, of mercy. He gives them so we would love and serve each other, our community, our city, and the whole world as we reach it for the Lord Jesus Christ. And God also calls us to give our money for the gospel. This is from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 14. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And you can read a bit more if you'd like in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now most people, uh, they go out 
to work, to earn a living, to put food on the table. Uh, but I and others uh, have the privilege of being set apart wholly for the work of the gospel here at St Jude's. As Dave Baker said a couple of weeks ago, there's no government or diocesan handouts. Actually goes the other way. No hidden pot of money. The gospel only goes out from here through the generous support of us, this church family. You see, giving financially to the work of the gospel is more than just a responsibility. It's not just a responsibility, actually, or obligation. It's a partnership in the gospel. When we're going on a roster, we're not just going on a roster. We're investing our time and our talents to see God's kingdom grow. And so when we give to St. Jude's or any other Christian ministry, we're not just donating money. We're not just funding an organisation. We're partnering with God and each other in the gospel to see people brought from death to life, to see the church grow to maturity in Christ. What a joy, what an absolute privilege to partner with God like that. And what a wonderful way to invest our treasure. It's an investment where moth and rust do not destroy, an investment that lasts into eternity. Well, where do we start? Well, giving, I think, can feel like drinking from a fire hydrant, right? There is so much need. How could I possibly make an impact? And I don't feel, just me, I don't feel I can really scratch the surface. I don't think I can actually do much at all. So where do we start? How do we start? Well, the reality is we can't do it all, right? We can't meet the needs of just one person, let alone the whole world. But that's okay. That's not our responsibility. God has got that. We can't meet all needs, but we can meet some needs. God will use our our resources, our giving, to bless some people. And that's our responsibility, to love our neighbour as best we can. So let's start there. Now, we could give everything away, right? We could give it all away and immediately we're all coming up with reasons why God doesn't actually ask us to do that. I don't think the scriptures call us to do that. God gives so that we can give, but he also gives gives to us uh, for our needs, but also for our enjoyment. And so in light of that, uh, some Christians have sent a benchmark for giving uh, and they've called it a tithe. Now a tithe is a tenth. It means giving a tenth of our income to support the work of the gospel and the church and then giving to other uh, needs on top of that. Now this benchmark is based on God's commands to Israel to give a tenth to support the Levites who maintain the temple, to support the temple itself and to also support the poor. Now, keep in mind, though, it's not clear how many tithes were actually given. Uh, Some 
uh, commentators say there was uh, one uh, each year, there was a, a tithe for the Levites, another uh, tithe for the temple, and one every three years for the poor, for the fatherless and the widows. So if you add all that up, what's that? 23%. Now we could drill into the details. How much was it exactly? Uh, was 10% for all giving or just for church? And, and was it out of pre or, or post-tax income back in Jesus' day? Now, they're all legitimate questions. But as we ask them, we need to remember that Christians aren't actually bound by tithing laws. We're not bound by them uh, any more than we're bound by the Old Testament food laws or the sacrificial system. Tithing may be good wisdom, a good rule of thumb, but to be clear, it's not a command of the New Testament. However, if you see 10%, and that's a big surprise to you, and your giving is nothing like that, tithing may be a good thing to think about and a good place to start. I actually think, though, that the vision for giving is even bolder, more ambitious, more inspiring than that. Instead of percentages, it describes a state of the heart. And we've been talking about it all over the last three weeks. And the state of the heart is generous. And the New Testament doesn't specify amounts of generosity, but it does give examples of what it looks like. Here's one from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Paul's urging the Corinthians to contribute to the needy Christians in Jerusalem who are in a time of famine. And here he holds up the Macedonian churches as an example to follow, right? Their joy, their generosity, it welled up, it overflowed, even though they weren't rich. Indeed, they were the opposite. They were in extreme poverty, yet they still gave. And they didn't hold back. They didn't give out of their leftovers or their spare change. It wasn't the last thing they budgeted in their week. They gave as much, even actually more than they could. And they begged for the privilege. Please let us do this. How could they do that? Not because of anything natural. The giving was supernatural. A powerful work of the Spirit, a mighty work of God's grace that transformed their hearts. That's one example. Here's another from Mark 12. Uh, one day Jesus was out and he sat down by the temple. Uh, as he was near the temple, he was watching people put their offerings into the temple treasury. Lots of rich people came and put in impressive amounts of money. And then came a poor widow, and she only put in a few cents. Then Jesus called his disciples over, and he said to them, Truly I tell you, 
She gave more than all the others because she gave everything. All she had to live on. Sisters and brothers, sometimes the most generous people in God's kingdom are those who have the least. And if they can be generous like that, how much more us who have so much more? It's easy to feel inadequate when we see such examples of stunning generosity. But these examples aren't here to condemn us. They're actually here to encourage us and to inspire us and to challenge us. To challenge us all to be more generous, but also to challenge our ideas of generosity. Often when we're thinking about it, we think in terms of the amount of the gift, right? Uh, Bill Gates, he's known for giving huge sums of money and that's, that's really impressive really is. But is that the only way or even the best way to measure generosity? The amount of the gift? I don't think so. For some people, anything they give is stunning. Like the widow who gave a few cents. And as Jesus said, she gave more than anyone else. For some people, tithing is extraordinarily generous. Say your income is $500 a week. For you, giving away $50 a week is huge. And possibly, uh, not possible, uh, after you pay your food bills, your rent bills and other things. But say you earn $50,000 a week, right? Say you give away 10% of that. That's $250,000 a year. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That's impressive. But say you even give away half your income. That's even more. That's over a million dollars. You still have over a million bucks a year to live on. That'd pay a few bills, I reckon. It's not to say that that isn't a good thing to do. It's just a bit of perspective. The amount we give isn't always the best measure of generosity and I suspect the better measure is this. The cost of the gift to the giver. That's what the Macedonians and the widows show us. You see, often it's the cost of the gift that reveals the true value of the gift because it reveals a generous heart transformed by God. 18th century American preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote about giving to the poor from Galatians 6 verse 2 which says carry each other's burdens right and as he answered the objection uh, uh, there was this uh, as he answered the question there was this objection what if I can't afford it right what if I can't afford to give to the poor and this is what he said if we're never obliged to relieve each other's burdens except when we can do it without burdening ourselves then how do we bear our neighbour's burdens at all when we don't bear a burden? What's he saying? Bearing burdens, giving generously actually costs. That's what generosity is. It's costly. It's sacrificial. It means not just missing out on the occasional luxury, 
but actually making different choices to the people around us. Generosity changes the way I live. Less nights out, maybe. Less money in my super account. Less property, less travel. Maybe even no property. uh, Generosity is giving that costs. And that's the early church. That's the Macedonian Christians. That's the widow. And that's the example of Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through, your, through his poverty you might become rich. Christ's gift was of infinite value. But the value of the gift isn't just in what Christ gave. It's what he gave up. His riches in heaven. His life for you. Generosity can be hard, especially if we don't feel rich. And some of us are not. Some of us can't really give away much at all. But like the widow, God knows your heart and he knows our situations. And some of us are rich in every sense, however you measure it. And God's call to us, regardless of our financial situation though, is give as you can with what you have, money or otherwise, for God has called us to be agents of his generosity. So let me ask all of us, how much of what we have do we really need? And how generous do we dare to be? I knew a pastor who led a church in a very underprivileged area of Sydney. Uh, The people didn't have much money, but a large part of the church's income came from some rent that a uh, neighbouring school paid that was on their property. And the school got into serious financial trouble and couldn't pay its bills. Uh, So the pastor and his wife decided to donate uh, a large part of their stipend or wage, $10,000 a year, back to the church. At the same time, a refugee in the congregation was about to be sent home and he needed about $4,000 in lawyer's fees and processing fees. The couple discussed it and they gave him the money. And then the time came to pay the kids' school fees. When the pastor's wife went to pay them, she found that the bank account was empty. You see, without discussing it with her, which might have been a bad idea, Her husband gave another member of the congregation $2,000 to fly home to bury his father. That's when they got a little bit stressed. They didn't tell the story to show off. It was the opposite. In fact, they told the story to show how God provided for them miraculously when they felt felt it, found it difficult to trust God. You see, by some miracle, the school got out of financial trouble and it all came back together. Sisters and brothers, that's a wonderful testimony, right? But it's not supposed to be a one-off. God has given us 
everything in Christ, now and into eternity. And so we can give lavishly, sacrificially, even dangerously, and be the generous givers that God has made us to be. In a minute, I'm going to pray for us. But please don't leave today without a plan to act. Please, this week, prayerfully uh, bring your giving to God. Discuss it with each other, maybe after church today or if you're in a small group, in your small group during the week. And make a commitment to review your giving. It might be that you go, I'm good, that's fine. But review your giving to those in need, to the work of the gospel here at St. Jude's and beyond. Let me pray for us now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we, we're blown away by your amazing generosity to us. We trust in your faithfulness. Father God, help us be wise, but sacrificial generous, even dangerous givers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.